Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire. Huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere, and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Oh, the shark bait has such teeth, dear. And it shows them pearly white. Just a jackknife has old Maggie Heath, babe, and it keeps it uh, out of sight. You know when that shark bites. So welcome everybody to another episode of Macklin's Take with me, Andy Clark, and Matt Macklin steering the ship as always. I'm in London. Uh, Macklin's in his. Birmingham Chapel. I don't know if anybody's seen the backdrop to where Matt does these podcasts from, but uh, his where he lives basically is an old converted church, so he looks like he's about to deliver a sermon. Uh, but we're uh, we're burning the midnight oil tonight because we needed to make sure our timings fitted to get our, our guest in, and this is something I've been looking forward to. It's it's an episode I've been wanting to do for for a good while, um, but because we usually try and record these in person. It didn't seem like the opportunity really would present itself. Uh, and so lockdown in this regard has been a bit of a, a blessing. And this is the fifth in our Make or Break series. We've spoken to Anthony Crawler, Spencer Oliver, Carl Froch, uh, Johnny Nelson so far. And this is a classic Make or Break that we're doing tonight because we're taking you back to Cancun, Mexico, March 2000. And eight, and a clash for the unified lightweight championship of the world. The WBA, IBF, and WBO titles were all on the line. And in the home corner, it was on HBO. In the home corner, uh, the HBO fighter, if you like, the the backed fighter was the undefeated thirty-three and O Juan Diaz, uh, and he was the holder of all those titles, making the eighth defense of that WBA title. He'd added the other two a little bit more recently, and there was a groundswell of huge support behind him people were very excited about him they were talking about fights to come already in the build-up to this one he was a clean-cut kind of wholesome marketable character he was a college student and he had aspirations to be the mayor of Houston which is where he was boxing out of so he had that Mexican-American backing and he was expected to win this fight at 24 years of age in the away corner was a man 12 years his senior, 36. He turned 36 the day before the fight. He'd had a fairly tough career up until that point. He'd boxed in a lot of eliminators. He'd boxed for a world title, but it hadn't gone his way. He'd taken up boxing at the age of 24, turning pro at 27. So it was an unusual journey. And to put it simply, he was not expected by most people to pull off the victory that night. It really was make or break. It was a last chance for him. Uh, and he joins us now. It's the Galaxy Warrior, Nate Campbell, all the way from Jacksonville, Florida. How are you doing? I'm good, man. How's everything going with you guys? Yeah, not too bad, not too bad. We were just saying before we hit record, we're kind of coming out of of lockdown now. How's how's um, how's isolation been for for Nathaniel Campbell the Third? 
I don't know what you're talking about. I don't. I don't do isolation. I'm. <laughs> I'm a rebel. You know. You know what. What you know. What us guys are like in America. I'm just not doing the stay at home thing. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, that doesn't come as a massive surprise to me, to be perfectly honest. <laughs> I stayed in the house a little bit. I mean, I didn't go out and just go to go. But if I had to go somewhere, I'd just go get in my car and go. I had to go. And it wasn't really that kind of lockdown in my city because we so spread out. My city is the largest city in the continental United States area-wise. But there's not a whole bunch of people here. So... I gave a little bit of an intro there to the circumstances surrounding the fight. So just put us in the picture that the floor is yours. Uh, was it accurate what I said there, first of all? Because uh... it, was it was accurate. Um, it was what it was. Um, everybody, the only person that thought, only people that thought um, Juan Diaz would win was everybody who didn't know me. Now, Buddy, if you talk to Buddy McGirt, Matt, I'm guaranteeing you, Buddy, I'm taking me this fight. I can, yeah, I can, that's, that, that's what I said to you when we were talking before we started doing this. I said, you know, I, I was actually over in Vero Beach training with Buddy McGirt. It was my first fight with Buddy. I just left Billy Graham, who was Ricky Hatton's trainer. So, you know, we knew about Juan Diaz because we talked one time about Juan Diaz and Ricky Hatton maybe fine. So I was really familiar with Juan Diaz. Not, I wasn't as familiar with you. Obviously heard you right. knew who you were. But Buddy, I remember that day we were going to watch, we were talking about the fights in the gym and, Buddy said to me, nah, man, trust me, Nate Campbell will bust his ass. <laughs> you, know the, you, know the, you know the way Buddy talks, you know? Hey, he said, I, I'm, and, and, and I'm going to explain something to you. When I fought, um, you have to kind of go back. Buddy was my trainer at one time, and I love Buddy. And other, everybody thought I, I left Buddy because there was some tension. I just need, Buddy had so many fighters. So I needed more one-on-one, more one-on-one training, I thought. I felt like I needed more one-on-one. So John David Jackson was able to give me that because John didn't have a house full of fighters. And um, Buddy was the guy. Buddy taught me how to be smart. Buddy taught me how to be smart, how to walk you, how to walk you into something because I was just in your face. And Buddy was like, baby, you, can't, you know you can't just beat everybody up like that. You got to take your time and walk to him. And hit it with the pop, bing, boom. And the sounds that Buddy made. <laughs> if you know Buddy, you're laughing I'm about laughing it. Cause I'm laughing because I know, I know he's talking the way he chats and that. <laughs> you got to walk him down, baby. Put it on a pop, bing, boom. Put the, the, put that, put, mix it in the blend. Yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah. Walk to him, catch and count, and step to him. <laughs> yeah. And Buddy was... Buddy was the one that, that, that just was that guy that taught me how to be real sneaky and subdued with my aggression. John David just taught me how to be me. So I needed those guys at each time in my life. And so when I got ready to fight Kid Diamond, some t- when I first came into the division, somebody asked Buddy, so what you think, man? Who you think going to win this fight? And Buddy looked at the guy and said, how does the kid fight? And they said, he's a bulldog. Buddy McGirt looked at the guy and said, oh, Nate going to bust his ass. <laughs> exactly, exact word. <laughs> and he said it, and, and I did exactly that. If you if you, you got to know me to know that I thrive with guys that come to me. I'm, I like it either way. You, you walk away from me, I get to come to you. If you come to me, I get to – however it goes, I like it. So, Kid Diamond – well, not Kid Diamond. Juan Diaz was tailor-made for me. So – Dude, Taylor I was, oh, Taylor, man, I was, dude, I was, I was trying to figure out how much money I was going to bet on myself. Yeah, yeah. He's Taylor made in hindsight, but going into it, he was the undefeated guy. You'd had a couple of losses. You're, he was a guy that was nurtured and built and was matchmaked. And, you know, he was the A-side, as they say now, where you were a guy that your record was just a real record. You took guys where you were the away corner, you'd lost, you'd learn from your last, you'd, do you know what I mean? So when you come to Fort Wayne Diaz, you've been in situations in a fight that he hadn't been yet, even though uh-uh. he was 33 and 0. There's an old saying, God bless him, he's gone now. Mr. Jimmy Williams once told me this. Mr. Jimmy Williams said, look here, son. He don't have enough dirt on his fingernails to fight you. And that's an old, that's an old boxing saying. If you if you from if you old school and in, in, in from the South, or you old school in the gyms in, in the United States of America. When an old guy say he don't have enough dirt under his fingernails, that means he hasn't been through enough. And 
I just felt like Juan Diaz really, he hadn't been through the mud yet. So I promised him, I made him a promise, Andy, I'm going to take him to hell. I said, I'm going to drag you into hell. My exact words to him were, I was going to drag him into hell. And that's uh, what you I know did. What else, do you know what else I found in that fight with Juan Diaz and you, Nate? You know, he, for the style of fighting that he brought to you, he didn't hit hard enough. Nope. You know what I mean? It was just it was suicide to fight you the way he fought you, but he didn't. Not, right. he, didn't he didn't have another way to fight you, really. Right. He didn't. He he only he was a one trick pony, and the trick he had, I was if, in, the, in the pony he came in riding. I decided I was going to cook later on that night. I said I'm going to eat horse tonight because that's all he got. That, that's it. And me and the guys were talking, and um, one of my and I never forget um, Alan Green, who I love to death. That's my baby brother from another mother. He never smiles. Every day in training camp, he smiled and he laughed and he did say, man, Alan's happy. He said, my brother finna be world champion. And that's just the way we felt. We felt like my camp, Randall Bailey, Alan Green, Charles Whitaker, um, um, Devo, and Sammy. Mike, we, we just knew I was about to be world champion. There was nothing that was going to stop me from being world champion. We felt that way. And when you got that kind of when you got that kind of group of guys around you that are pushing you and edging you on, man, telling you to go, 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 you, it's kind of hard. I mean, it's, it's, it's hard. Somebody's trying to call me. It's hard to, to not do great. So just take us back to the, to the kind of the build-up to, to fight week. How, how were things for you? Because as we've just alluded to, he was the backed fighter. I, I watched the fight earlier today and the footage on YouTube, if you haven't seen it, just, just tap it in. Juan Diaz versus Nate Campbell. You get an hour and 10 minutes. The first 10 minutes, five, 10 minutes is a, is a feature on him outlining the things I mentioned earlier on. And, and everybody was very much, the establishment, if you like, was very much behind him. So how was it all for you? I had to, they made me stand in the breezeway. They stopped me at the bottom in front of a TV and made me watch it. They basically made me watch that. All it did was, was piss me off in the worst way. When you was, oh. so when you was getting ready to ring walk, you, was, you were watching that on a monitor kind of behind the, you know what I mean, backstage type thing. Yeah. And I looked over, I looked over at John and something to bust his ass, coach. John Davis said, let's go bust it. You know, I had a trainer. I have, I've had great trainers, man, but me and John David were – there's a picture of me and John David walking in the ring. I'm walking in front of him, and he's walking behind me, basically, and he's in the back camera shot. And I, our, total, our total energy was totally aligned. It's like we were the same person in two different bodies. You're on the bodies. same page. You're on the I same wavelength. Yes, and it was things that John would – it was – little. Grunts that John would give me between rounds that nobody caught but the people in the corner. It was things that John would say to me between rounds that was like, um, keep talking to him. He wouldn't tell me what to do. Like, hit him with this, hit him, just keep talking to him. Keep doing what you're doing, but keep talking to him. And I'm like, yes, sir. And somebody's like, um, they don't get how much that meant for me to be, to be so synced up with my trainer. I was totally synced with my trainer. Nobody was beating us that night. Nobody. Because he knew the shots you were throwing were working anyway. And he was just saying, keep talking to him because you're breaking him up here. You're breaking him psychologically. And that was more important than whether you landed a left hook or a right uppercut or whatever. John David told me something in training camp. He told me something in training camp. He said the first time he steps back, that's the, that's the end of the fight. Juan Diaz took a step back the very first minute of the first round. In, in my mind, that was the end of the fight. There was no win for him. So we'll get to the actual action in, in, in just a second, but we described this series as make or break. And, and this very much was that for you because you'd had a tough result against Joel Casamayor. The scorecards went against you. As mentioned, you had had some defeats. And at 36, you'd won so many eliminators. Nobody was ever going to give you a voluntary. This was your opportunity. And as I said to begin with, you only took up boxing at 24 after a colleague spotted you uh, shadow boxing in the aisles, doing the overnight shift, stacking shelves. Three years later, you turned pro at 27. That's unusual in itself. But at 36, the day after your birthday, this was it, wasn't it? It was now or never. Um, I'm going to give you guys a piece of history. I don't know if you watched the whole video where we do the interview at the end. Did you watch that part, Andy? 
Do you remember me saying, Pastor, you can go home? Yeah. I was a minister. I, I became a minister in the church, um, House of Faith, Church of God in Christ when I was 22 years old. And a lot of people don't know this, that um, I grew up in the church. I was a minister. I was a preach, teach, minister. Singing, I was that guy. And um, in early February, I went to camp in late, late in, in, in mid-January. Early February, I started to have this, mid-February, I started having this inkling inside of me I needed to go home. And I told JD, I said, Coach, I'm, 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 I'm below the weight. I'm in great shape. I got in great shape. I said, it was, it was about early, early February, first four weeks of camp, I was in great shape. I said, Coach, can I go home and see my family? I just really need to go home and see my family. There's something pulling me to see my family. So I, I, don't, I hadn't been to church in a long time. That wasn't something I was doing. I was on my thing, doing my thing. And I had pastors, I had his support, but I didn't have, um, I wasn't, I didn't go to church. That's just what it was. And um, so I went to church that Sunday. I went down to church to see pastor that Sunday. And he wasn't in church. And I leaned forward. I never forget leaning forward and touching the sister in front of me. I said, my exact words. The man that was in the pulpit preaching was my, my former father-in-law. But I didn't come for him. I came for pastor. I said, where's my pastor? My exact words. <laughs> and everybody knew I talked about him like that, like he's mine. But he was everybody's pastor. But he's, he was like my father. I said, she said, well, Nate, we knew you were training. And we knew that he was sick. And we didn't want, we didn't want to disturb you in camp. So I said, where is he? And she told me where he was. So I got up from church, after church, and I drove over to the hospital where he was. I walked into the room. He was, he was laying there. And he hadn't smiled since he came there. But when he saw me, he smiled. He had this big, big, hey, I said, hey, man, why you didn't call me and tell me you weren't feeling good? He said, because you was training and we didn't want to bother you. And I told him, I said, um, I would break in the song and sing for you, but I was taught by this really great pastor that you don't come into a, a hospital and act unseemingly. So you, I'm not going to sing because I might make people get really happy. And we were joking about it. He was like, but you can sing for me if you wanted to. I said, nah. I said, tell you what. After I win the world title, I'll come back to church and I'll sing any song for you that you want. And I'll do an A and B selection. And he's like, you promise? I said, I promise. And um, he looked me in the eye and he said, go finish what you started. You, you, you set out on a journey to do something nobody believed you can do. Go finish what you started. I said, yes, sir. I got, i never forget, I was driving a, a 2000 um, Ford Ex Expedition. I dropped my then fiance off at the house. And I was getting on 95 off 295 to go back down south to, to, um, to Fort Lauderdale near Miami. And something overwhelmed me. And I began to cry. And I had to pull over. And I'm not a crier. I pulled over to the side of the road. And I began to cry because I knew I'd never see him again. I looked in his eye and I just knew I'd never see him again. That would be the last time I'd ever lay eyes on him. And I cried so hard. So like, I cried till I lost my voice. Do you get what I'm saying? But I, 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 write, I, write, I fixed myself and I righted, my, I righted the vehicle back into the, into the floor of traffic. And I drove back to Miami four hours away. Well, Fort Lauderdale is about four hours away. And that Monday morning, I, be, I, I set out on a mission to break, destroy, and kill anything they put in front of me. And I was so vicious that even my sparring partner saw the difference. I had four sparring partners, and, I, and John Dave had to tell me, Nate, you cannot keep doing this to your sparring partners. We, we don't know we're going to find anymore. So we fast forward everything, and we do the conversation on the phone. Before there was Zoom, they would put you on a conference call. And Juan Diaz said, I'm going to bully him all night long. And I said on the phone, 
to Juan Diaz on the phone. I said, let me tell you something, little boy. You ain't man enough to bully me. I'll break you. I said, you can't beat me. You ain't been through enough. I got off the phone, hung up, finished training camp. We got to, um, we got to Cancun. I want to say it was, the week, it was the week of the fight. We got in, I want to say March 1st. Don King, everybody, well, everybody's there. So I'm there and I'm doing what I'm supposed to do and everything is going good. And the 5th of March rolls around. And I started, the 5th of March rolls around and that night of the 5th, I had a dream about my pastor. I knew he was dead. At that moment, I knew something inside me began to tell me he was gone because I was dreaming of it. And the way I was dreaming of him, it was so vivid. So each night, the 5th, the 6th, and the 7th, the night of the 7th, I had a dream about it. In the, the, the morning of the 8th, I got up after <coughs> going to um, the weigh-in the night day before. We had to go do the morning weigh-in, early morning weigh-in. And there was a calm that fell over me that lasted all the way, just lasted. And I went back to my room and I ate. And I said, okay, all right. All right, Pastor, I get it. I get it. I get it. So when I, if you watch, when I walked into the ring, my face was totally stoned because I felt like, people don't get this, I felt like there was such an energy in the room that was so calming to me, such a peace to me, that the whole week leading up to the fight, everything about that whole week leading up to the fight was, was like, it was ordained for me to be there. It was providence for me to be there. And I'm not talking on a, on a God level. I'm talking on a spiritual level beyond, yeah. beyond. It was, it was, everything in my life was in sync. Everything that John did was perfect. Everything that I was doing was right. My cousin. And I kept noticing that my, then my, my fiance's sister kept walking away whenever she saw me. She would walk away and go cry. And I wouldn't, I couldn't figure that out. But what had happened was my pastor had died and nobody wanted to tell me. But if you realize what I said, Pastor, you can go home, I knew it already. So for me, that week was, it was like cut up, like it was cut up into perfect pieces for me. Everything that happened was perfect. Everything that was going on was what, what was supposed to happen. This was, was go, it was, this was what we would be no matter what. So that week was perfect for me. But it, it was different than every other fighter's week because it was providence for me. Sometimes the saying isn't that the stars align for you. It's your time. That's it. That, that, for me, for me, everything lined up. My Jupiter was my Jupiter was in front of Mars, and every planet was right where it should have been. You know, it was perfect. So, what was the situation like as regarding the promoters? Because you were with Don King. But so was he, or at least he had been. I think they'd had a falling out before the fight. And that all seemed a little bit kind of murky to me. I mean, can you explain what was going on there? Well, well, Don King had one fight. They had one. They didn't like. Willie Savannah never. Willie Savannah hated Don King all the way back to Ronnie Shields. And that, that's one day as his manager, isn't it, Willie Savannah? Is that right? Right, right, right. He was. And. and and he probably hated Don with whatever whatever he felt was good reason. Ronnie Shields was training one day as wasn't I? Right, but but Willie Savannah used to used to manage Ronnie Shields. Okay. And he used to be signed to Don King, and something happened, and Willie Savannah never forgave him for it. And um, what happened was Don King made the fight. The whole reason Don King signed me because I was the number one mentor, and Juan Diaz only had. One, two fights left with Don when he signed. He had one fight left. He, he fought Freitas the fight before, beat him. Then he fought Julio Diaz and beat him. And he had one fight left. So Don's goal was to make that one fight with me. So he signed me for that. And i never forget Don looked me in the face and said, Hey, hey, Nate, I'm going to ask you a question. Hey, um, can you beat him? i never forget him asking me that. I said, man, give me my money. Let me go to train, man. I ain't got time to be playing with you. I said, he can't beat me, man. Give me my money. Let me go train. And um, so Don put up a whole 
Don put up a list of every, every dime he ever paid Juan Diaz. And one thing about Don King is this. He don't forget numbers. Don King was a numbers runner. He remembers your phone number. You give him your phone number today, he can tell you that phone number 10 years from now, even if you can't tell him that phone number. He remembers numbers. Don King paid Juan Diaz more money for training camp expense than I made my whole career. Yeah, he made a lot of money. How did you find him to deal with, then, Don King? Because you hear all sorts of stories, but, you know, unless, you, unless you've been on the end of it, then it's hard to know what the truth is, really. If I didn't, if I would have known then what I knew now, what I know now, I'd have stayed with Don King. I would never live Don King. I would have stayed with Don King, come hell or high water. I'd have signed with him first and stayed with him the whole time. He was the best promoter I ever had. I knew what to expect from him. It wasn't that he told me the truth all the time. I just, I knew what I was dealing with with Don. There was never any preconceived notions about Don King with me. Hey, 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 kids. Hey, everybody. Sitting here with a famous Slovenian philosopher. How are you doing, sir? I am uh, in hell, thank you. Are you uh, excited about something? I am excited about this latest uh, CIA-funded venture. A CIA venture? Yes. It's called the Desire and Capital Podcast. Oh, what is it about? I refuse your fascist question. Well, there you have it. Listen to the Desire and Capital Podcast, coming soon to a bourgeois platform near you. On your marks, get set, go! So when it comes to the night of the fight, then, and as I say, I did watch this back earlier earlier today. When that first bell goes, you step on him immediately. And it was just a brilliant fight to watch right from the very start. By the end of it, you'd thrown 1145 punches. And, and listening to the, to the HBO commentary, and it's Jim Lampley and Max Kellerman and Emmanuel Stewart, uh, who during the ring walk described you as an unusual man, which, <laughs> which made me laugh uh, because you're definitely not the kind of man you meet every day. You, you know, I'm kind of unusual. So <laughs> yes, absolutely. The, 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 I don't want to break Andy's flow when he gets on a roll. And I feel like I'm got to jump in when you're on about Dan King there. If it goes on too much, I can't bring it back. But I remember when we were on about Dan King once, because there was a guy training with Buddy and he was, you know, in some money trouble with Dan and, and, Remember Seamus, my brother, who was there, said, Buddy, what, why do all these guys sign with Dan King if he's always robbing people? And Buddy just goes, he can sell you the dream, man. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, but Buddy, Buddy McGurk's a piece of work, dude. <laughs> anyway, Andy, back to you. So we've just heard the final bell uh, and Nate Campbell steps straight into the centre of the ring and, and you look to put it on him right from, right from the very start. And, and listening to the, uh, to the coverage, uh, and we find ourselves in this position a lot. Sometimes you can get a narrative in your head as much as you try not to of what you expect to happen. And they expected Juan Diaz to, to win that fight. So in the first half of it, the, the rounds were close. Harold Lederman, I think, had you 4-2 down after six rounds, but it was in the second half that they began to realise, actually, this could be going the other way. I don't get it. I, bro, I don't get it. I, I don't get it. I outthrew him and outlanded him in every round. How did he win a round? I don't know what you're talking I, I I totally dominated, for the most part, every round. I landed more, I threw more. So how could he possibly win a round? You know what, though? Even you're right as well. Because I remember the fight. You were, you were winning. You, you just had him in every department, really. But even some, you know, sometimes you're watching fights and someone might be getting ahead on the card, but you know they're going to lose the fight because the writing's on the wall. But even if he's outscoring someone, they're getting broken down. Right. And, and that even, even though he was kind of staying with you a little bit, I still thought you were winning the rounds. But you know what I mean? He was, in, he was throwing a lot. But you could see that it was breaking him. There was never a round where he out threw me or outlanded me, period. No, and as a matter of fact, I threw 117 punches one round. But I hovered around 95. 
I don't get it. And but I knew what that was about. Only one person in the whole on the whole staff was telling the truth. God bless him, he's dead now. But the other guys were house guys. They're gonna always be house guys. You know, I I told Max a long time ago, Max, you are you work for HBO, you really work for HBO. You and Jim Lampley really work for HBO. HBO never cared cared about me like that because they never paid to bill me. You know, they didn't pay, they didn't invest any real money in me. I was always on the B side. That's what we were talking about, weren't it, Andy? We were, you know, we were on about this part with me and you were talking before and was saying, you know, Nate was meant to lose. Juan Diaz was the undefeated fighter. He was the marketable guy. He's the one that they were really invested in. You know, Nate was like, you know, meant to put up a good show, but lose really. Yeah, absolutely. That was the that that was the formula around it. And and these are always particularly interesting ones, I find, when you when you get that sort of situation. Um a key point came in the sixth round because a cut opened up. There was a slight nick over his left eye right from the very first round, but then a cut really opened up in the sixth round and it the referee called it a headbutt and, and took a point from you, although the replay seemed to show that it was it was down to a sneaky little left hand up close. When that point went, what does that do to you mentally in the middle of a fight? Because, again, it's more kind of evidence for you that, that the odds might be stacked against you here. Um, Bro, I'm just going to tell you like this, though. For me, when the cut happened and the rough took the point, I was like, well, let's go to work. Here's where the bullshit starts. My exact, my exact words. And I'm, I'm, I'm sorry to say it like that, but that's what I said. Here's where the bullshit, this is where it starts, right here. So I went back to the corner and I told John, I didn't, I didn't butt him, coach. I, the whole fight, I never butt him. He butted me, but I never butted him. I would take my forehead and put it right here in his neck and press it in close. Because when, I, when you put your forehead in a guy's neck, and he tries to move his head, he has exposed his chin. And he can't move his head, his head to the other side. That's an old school trick I was taught by a guy named Charlie Doc Williams. Old school fighter taught me something that he used back in the day. And nobody was paying attention to that. They would just kept calling me, oh, he's butting him. I'm not butting him. I never butted him once. I just kept pressing that forehead into his neck. So I knew that I knew that, that all the cards were stacked against me. I knew that. So my job was just to go out and knock the stack over and just keep every time they restacked it, knock it over again. And that's what I did. And so if it, after the sixth round, everything went downhill anyway. He never won a round. He never won another round. Now, you broke his will by that. You'd knock the fight out of him by around that time. There's a There's a... I, I wanted to say something to him, but I didn't. I think I thought it may have been wasted on him. But it, uh, there are two things I, I wanted to tell him. The first thing I wanted to tell him was I, I am the I am the punishment of God. If you had not committed great sin, God would not have placed me upon you. That's the first thing I wanted to say to him. I said it might be wasted on him. He might not read as much as he might not read anything outside of the books that they give him in college. You know that is a um, Genghis Khan statement. Um, and then, um, I just don't, I didn't, I, I mean, I didn't know that the things that I really wanted to say to him were the things that really would, would challenge him to think. So I just made it very easy. For him. I'm going to drag you to hell. I wanted him to understand that this was going to be every time after every round, I would look him in the face and say all night, fat boy. I say something to him after every round. I would, I would make sure I told him. What would make, I asked him one round, whatever made you think you could beat me? And I would, I would ask him questions like this after every round. I would say something to him every round. I would tell him, make, when his mother would scream, as, as, as I would tell him, tell that B-I-T-C-H to shut up. And I would say it whenever I heard his mother scream. And I, uh, uh, anybody in this corner that was poor, I'd say, every time they scream, I'm punishing you, fat boy. And I would just, I, I would say it with such disdain that he would, he would react to it. Ah! He would react to it. I'd be like, dummy, now you're burning energy, mentally burning. I, I'm mentally in your head now. And I, I just would keep doing stuff to him. 
So everything that I was doing was about mentally breaking him, Matthew, mentally breaking him. And I, my goal was to make, I wanted to take the, take the taste of fight out of this, the taste of the fight out of his mouth. And that's what I did. Yeah, psychological warfare. And by that, by the sixth round, you'd, you'd, you'd took his soul, you'd knocked that fight out of him. He didn't believe he could win the fight at that point. Hey everybody, this is Moto G Pete from the Nokomoto Motorcycle Podcast. Join us every week while we rate, review, ride, philosophize, and generally obsess over every single motorcycle make, model, and style that could possibly exist, plus news and racing. That's the Nokomoto Motorcycle Podcast from Moto One Podcast Network Studios. And I told somebody, um, you gotta you gotta make a man doubt doubt everything he's ever been taught. Doubt everything he's ever been taught. Every time that they would scream somebody in the corner, I would tell him they don't know what they're talking about. And I hit him with a three-piece combination and run their right hand down to the body. Bang! I said, I'm gonna every time they scream and tell you something, take that back to him. And I would say stuff to him, and I, my goal was to make him miserable. That's what I did. So could you feel the kind of the, the will to to keep going just seep out of him towards the end? Because looking at that fight to me, he, he did dig in. He did dig in towards the end and, and, and hang in there. Um, I thought he showed some I thought he showed some some bottle that no, night, did. to be honest. He, he did dig in and dig. I remember the fight, he did dig in and because he was a tough guy and he was a Mexican proud warrior, but he didn't believe he could win the fight after a point. Do you know what I mean? He's he's a tough guy and he's not gonna He's not going to quit because he's proud, but he didn't really believe he could win the fight after that. I think it was the sixth round when Nate said he had him. That you know, there's a isn't it, Nate? There's a difference between staying in there and toughing it out and actually really believing you can still win the fight. I'm gonna tell you a secret. I told somebody. I said I was holding his manhood hostage. <laughs> <laughs> I had a, I had a pocket knife. I had a pocket knife, and I was holding to his. Hey, I had his manhood like this. I had a pocket knife on his jugular vein of his manhood. <laughs> there was nothing you could do about it. And every time he he come in, I I'd hit him and say something else like, "You hit like a girl." And I mean, you just you just got a guy. I mean, I was just talk to him the whole fight. So everything that he was doing was just to me. It was basically him trying to prove to himself that he could stay in the fight. I didn't, I didn't believe it. You got to make me believe that you really want this. And he couldn't do that. When it got to the end of the fight, long, long wait for the scorecards. Really long wait. What, what were you thinking at that point? I was, I, was, I was, first of all, I was having to do the stuff that Don King was saying was the funniest stuff. When I write my when I do the when I write my life as I'm writing my life story right now, actually, I'm telling you, this was dude. Don King was saying the most hilarious stuff to Willie Savannah in the corner. Don King told um, Willie Savannah, he he walked right over to Willie Savannah after the fight, said, "I'm so glad I ain't got to fuck with you no more." I said, "Whoa, <laughs> whoa!" <laughs> the stuff that Don King was saying to Willie Savannah was hilarious, dude. It was. It wasn't just like he was saying stuff because he wanted to say stuff to him. He really did not. They didn't like each other. And Don King was like, Don King was cussing the referee out. Don King told him, if you don't win the fight, you'll never, you'll never work again. I guarantee you'll never work again. And I was, <laughs> dude. I am, to this day, to this day, we still laugh about it. Me and my, my advisor, who was a co-manager, co-promoter, rather. <laughs> Every time we get together, before we leave, he looks at me and says, I'm so glad I ain't got to fuck with you no more. And we die laughing because the look of utter disdain in Don King's face was, he really did not like, they didn't like each other. This wasn't like, as my mama said, this is for real, not play play. <laughs> she, they didn't like each other, and man, it was so for me. I was, and then I'm gonna tell you what let me know I won the fight. 
one of the the guy the guy the guy that um worked for the IBF name was Al. He's dead now, and he came and stood over by me with the belt. If you notice that, there was a guy with the IBF belt standing next to me, and and I'm like, oh my god, they they're trying to rob me. They're trying to rob me. They're trying to rob me. And I was so used to being robbed that um. I just was so used to being robbed. And um, it wasn't, it's not something you want to get used to, but I'm like, they're trying to take this one from me. And I never forget Al said, you got it. You got it, son. Don't worry about it. You got it. So how was the feeling over the next, over the next few days? I mean, what did you do? I mean, how did you, how did you celebrate? You're in Mexico, of course. You're in, you're in, you're in Cancun. So you're quite a long way, quite a long way from, from home. You've got this tight team around you who all absolutely believed that you were going to do it, but they were probably the only ones in the building. <laughs> and they probably were. They probably were. And um, wow. Man. First thing we did was we got up and went home the next day. Um I couldn't wait to get back get back to Florida. You know, I'm a Florida boy at heart. I couldn't wait to get back to Florida. So I got I got up the next day. I got back in um I got back in Florida got back to Florida. That's uh that next day, hung out in Fort Lauderdale for a while. Then I got on, I got on the road and drove back home because my, my, my then fiance, she flew in from Jacksonville. So I flew back to where I flew out of, Fort Lauderdale. I flew back to Fort Lauderdale, handled the business with Don King, went over, picked up my, my check from Don King, because that's why I did it. Um, got on the road, drove back home. And I never forget driving. I never forget driving home. I, I drove home thinking to myself, I'm the world champion. Wow. I'm world champion. I was on my cell phone driving, calling all my family, because you know, I really wasn't picking my phone up. And once I got back, I had like all these messages from family members, like. Boy, you the world champion. I never get one of my cousins say, Boy, you know you the world champion. Do you know you is the world champion? God, boy, we can't wait to see you around here. We so proud of you. And I'm like, and I'm thinking to myself, wow, I'm the guy that they said that wouldn't live to be, I wouldn't, I wouldn't live to make 25. But I'm world champion today, man. I'm I'm the guy that many people said. Only way I'd be on TV was America's Most Wanted, you know. I was, from being real, I was a rough kid, man. And I was like, I was just so, man, it was surreal, man. I, I look back at it, I think about it from time to time. And I think about what people said about me that hurt, that really didn't matter in that moment. None of it mattered in that moment. Every bad thing that was ever said about me, ever thought about me, it all went away. I was, I was, I was world champion. You know, I was, I was world champion. And there was nothing anybody could do about it. I was world champion. Even though the next day I, I read in the paper, Willie Savannah told everybody I was on steroids, that I didn't take a blood test. And I, it hurt. There was a, there was a, there was a bit of pain involved with that because I would never have said or done that to anybody. But at the end of the day, I was world champion and they couldn't take that away. And my daughters, my daughters who were all still in school, my daughter Jasmine was a senior in high school at that point. And I never forget her saying, daddy, you world champion. I'm like, yeah, I'm world champion. And so for me, it was, gosh, man, I, I never forget talking to John David and looking at John David and smiling and saying, Coach, wow. <laughs> Just wow. I I said something on the on the I was John's first marquee fighter. I was the first guy that John got that had a name. Even though I wasn't champion or anything, I was the first guy some years before. And John went through it with me, man, with Robbie Peden's and all that stuff. He went through it with me. He stayed by my side. He was he was there for me when everybody else would, told him to give up on me. He never gave up on me. And I was sitting right next, John was on this side of the aisle in the seat. And I was on this side of the aisle, sitting next to each other. 
and we were on our bus going back to um, Cancun Palace. Now, I'll never forget, I looked at John. I said, I just want to tell y'all something. I know John David was, I said, I remember when John David was training on Mark, Mark, Mark Suarez, who I love Mark Suarez. I said, John was training Mark Suarez, and he was getting ready to fight for the world title. I said, and I didn't, I didn't want, I wasn't jealous, but I, was, I felt some kind of way because I felt like I should have been, you know, the first champion. And then when Mark lost, I'm like, damn, I really wanted John to have his first champion. But I kind of wanted to be John's first champion no matter what because I was his first name fighter. And I kind of told John, I said, I looked over and I said in front of everybody, I said, um, we went through a lot to get here, guys. I said, it's been a whole bunch of marching uphill through the mud. I said, but tonight, everything happened in my life that should have happened. I said, no matter what happens from now on, and I hope that a lot of great things happen from now on for, for my coach. I said, but tonight, I get to be the first man he ever took to a world title. I said, he can never have another first. I said, I don't give a, I said, I said, I don't give a damn who else he get. They're going to always come after me. And to this day, Whenever I, whenever I tell, whenever I tell him I love him, I, I, and I love him and what he means to me, I always remind him. I say I'm still the first one. I don't care what you say. I'm still the first one. And we always laugh about that because he said, "Yeah, you're the first one. I don't care what they say. Nate gonna always be my first. And um, one guy, well, some guy asked me said one time, say, "I guarantee you, if things went bad for you, I bet John will let you come live with him." And John David told one of the guys, said, um, if Nate ever lost everything he had, had nowhere to go, he said, Nate Campbell could come live with me as long as he needed to. He said, why? He said, because Nate Campbell is just my, he's special to me. He's my fighter. He's my first champion. And he can never want for nothing, as far as I'm concerned. And John David and me have a special bond with that. So for me, it was just that thing that happened in my life that made everything perfect. I got to, I got to do that night, everything I wanted to do that night, I got to be John David Jackson's first champion. I got to be the first unified champion in my city. I got to be, I got to be, I got to, well, you know, my family and my family, um, I can't, I can never be the best fighter in my family. I can never be the best fighter in my family. I can't be because I just can't because my great grandmother's, her maiden name is Patterson. Her first cousin was a little guy named Floyd Patterson. So I can never be the greatest fighter in my family. But I, I, I think I won more belts at one time than Floyd. So I always bring that up when we have the family get-togethers. They say, you're not even the best family in your, fighter in your family. I'm like, nah, but I, I won the most titles at one time. And that's always my one-up for them. So with John David, I, I get to always be his first, fight, first world champion. And we're the big, we're the best, we're the best, we're, we're family, man. We're family. Um, I'm just blessed to, tonight, that night for me was just. Was that your night, was that your night now? You know, when you look back over your whole career and there's always one night, isn't it? Was that that night? Yeah, that was that night. That was, that was that night. That was the night when, when it didn't matter that I was, I came up poor. It didn't matter that my mother my father was on drug, on, was alcoholic, and my mother was, was a drug addict. It didn't matter that I grew up in foster care. It didn't matter that people didn't believe in me. It didn't matter. None of that mattered. It, none of that mattered anymore. That was the first time in my life where nothing, nothing mattered that people thought would matter. None of that stuff mattered to me. I got to be, I got to be a superhero for that one moment in time. And nobody can take that from me ever in life. No one could ever tell me that. I had a guy ask me the other day on Facebook. He said, what does it feel like to, be a, to have been a trial mule? I said, I don't know. I wouldn't know. I was world champion. <laughs> I said, I wouldn't know. I don't know what, what it was like. I said, I was, I was unified world champion. I wasn't just, I said, not even Floyd Mayweather can say he did what I did. Not Manny Pacquiao, not Marquez. None of them can say they did what I did. I said, only, there's only three guys in the history of the, of the lightweight division that ever did what I did. One of them was Pernell Whitaker. He, won, he, was, uni, he was undisputed. Juan Diaz was unified. I beat him to be unified. 
No one else ever did it. Now, somebody else is going to do it down the line, but they can't take me out of the conversation. So for me, that was my time. That, that was my moment, my shining moment. There were other nights that were great, but that was the one for me. Uh, just one final one. Um, interesting you described yourself as a superhero because you did, in fact, come into the ring wearing a cape that night. But that's, uh, that's uh... <laughs> That wasn't a cape. That was not a cape. It was a Matador's was outfit, not... something like that, it was wasn't it? Matador. And, and, and guess that's, what? That, that's just his dress sense. <laughs> that's his style. Hey. <laughs> no. You want to know what? To this day, a lot of people don't get this. Boxers have the gra- have the the grandest sense of humor, but I want people to know this. That wasn't even my idea. I I didn't even come up with that. Kevin Kelly came up with that. The great Kevin Kelly came up with that. Kevin Kelly said, Nate, man, you should, you should, man, you should do a play on words for this fight. I'm like, huh? He said, you should come in wearing a Matador's cape because he's the baby boy. I said, oh, that's dope, bro. That's dope. I said, where am I going to get one from? I, this like the week we get ready to leave. I said, damn. So I get together and get one of the guys to take me down to the place we fought. We fought in a bull ring called Plata de Toro. So I went down there and paid 300 bucks for a Matador's hat and cape. And I said, I want one. I want a hat that's been, been trampled. And the guy said, huh? I said, I want a cape. That's, I want a hat that's been trampled. I don't want a perfect hat. I said, because my career is indicative of someone that's been, I've been trampled once a time, once or twice. I want a, I want a hat that's been trampled. You want it to and be I symbolic? Said, it's, it was symbolic to me. And, um, hey. So just to... So just just to just to take you back, just just one last question. You you um, filled us in a little bit there on 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 the way you came up and how difficult things were for you. When you were shadow boxing in the aisles of that store, doing the night shift, stacking shelves, you hadn't even taken up boxing at that point. But did you have inside you this belief that that Nate Campbell was going to be somebody? and was going to achieve something. You might not know what it was then, but you were going to achieve. You were going to make a name for yourself. I was in a bad marriage. Let's really be, it wasn't bad because we were bad people. We just were young when we got married. We didn't understand what marriage was. She was a good woman. She's a great woman to this day, even though we we don't see eye to eye on many things. Um, I don't hate her. I'm sure she hates me, but (laughs) most women do. Um, But, um, I, um, I started boxing so that I wouldn't stray outside my marriage. And, and that's really what it was about for me. I wanted to be, I wanted to stay in my marriage. And if nothing else, I wanted to be that guy that did what was right. And so for me, one, you know, I was an outstanding basketball player and it was starting this under this under six foot league. Everyone was going to be under six feet. And um, everybody was trying to get me to go try out for the team. I'm like, ah, I don't know. I don't know if I want to do that. And eh, I don't know if my heart is in it like it used to be. And, you know, just having all these conversations. And when I went to the gym the first time, I got beat up. (laughs) Let's be real with it. I got beat up. And something about that that, that beating made me have to prove that I could do more. I could be, I could, I could conquer this fear that I had of losing. And I never forget telling my then wife, I don't know what it is, but I won't be, I will not be at this warehouse. I'm, I'm going to do something great. I didn't know what, it, I didn't know what it was. I just believed I could do something great. And when I won my first tournament, about six months after I started boxing, I won by knockout. I won, I, I won both fights by knockout. And, um, I knew I could punch, but I didn't know if I could really be good at boxing because anybody can punch, but to be good at the sport of boxing to me meant more than just throwing a hard punch. Anybody can do that. I wanted to be more. So when everybody was trying to get me to go pro out of the gate, I decided I was going to stay amateur because I knew that if I, if I stayed amateur, that I could be something special. So for me, I I think that I knew that I would rise to the top. I just didn't know when. 
Yo, I'm DK, co-host of the One Star Recruits podcast. My best friend Rip and I host five-star athletes, celebs, business leaders, comedians, and coaches from around the world. Each week, I can guarantee you the show will always have great laughs, catch up on life's in relatable ways, and have a ton of fun. We're recruiting you. We are the one stars, which means we can ask the questions that no other podcast asks to guests like Joey Chestnut, Evander Holyfield, Bobby Hurley, Jenny Finch, Ryan Lochte, Montel Jordan. New guests every week, compelling interviews that you want to hear. Check us out wherever you get podcasts. One Star Recruits. Okay, I, I can see Macklin's eyelids drooping in uh, in his Solly Hole Chapel. So uh, just uh, enjoying it. <laughs> it is hey, quite late. I remember Mac. I remember remember your brother Seamus. That's right. Yeah, I, I remember Seamus. I remember Seamus. So when you said Seamus, I remember him. Because you ain't, if you're American, you don't know many Seamuses. I'm just going to be honest with you. <laughs> I mean, if you know a guy named Seamus, he probably is like one of one. <laughs> you know? Yeah, sure. And you I remember, remember I, anyway. Yeah, I remember Seamus. Then I said, I remember when you were training with Buddy. But, um, man, it was, man, I've been blessed, man. You know, the greatest, greatest moments of my life are either watching my kids or grandkids be born or boxing. I don't really have many other things in my life that have been as monumental in my life as my boxing or my children. And I'm going to say this, it's probably going to be the end of it. I, I, I understand. I, I, keep, I, I, I write poems. I write poetry. So I don't have anything I wrote, but I have something. I'm going to tell you about a poem I wrote. I speak of boxing as being a woman, being a, a girlfriend that you know might not mean you any good, but you stay with her because she's honest. And, and boxing was that for me. Boxing was always honest with me. The sport of boxing never lied to me, never made me out to think that I was more than what I was. Boxing always kept me on my toes. I could never quite figure it out. And th- those are the type of women that make men stay. And, and a lot of people don't get that. A woman that keeps a man guessing tends to be the woman that keeps his, keeps his attention. And that's what boxing was for me. Boxing was that woman that kept my attention. She, she always gave me something different. She always made me think about something more than probably I should have or I could have. But she always rewarded me when I did right. And she punished me when I did wrong. And... That was the, that's the only way I can describe what boxing was to me. Because it's, it's just something different to everyone else. Well, I think that's a great place to finish. I like that analogy, Macklin. What do you make of that? Yeah, yeah I'm, I'm nodding. I'm nodding. I'm nodding my head in approval. <laughs> Mac, wait, like hey, Mac, hey, Mac don't, don't go using my stuff because if I find out you use it, I'll punch you in the stomach. Nah, it's copyright. <laughs> You're all right. <laughs> Okay, well, we'll leave it there. Nate, thanks so much for this. It's been it's been great fun. Uh, as I said, I've been waiting for an opportunity to to do this for a while. It would have been great to do it in person. Um, it'd be brilliant to see you over in the UK at some point. I mean, John David did come over a couple of times, actually, Man, with Danielle you know, Yelusinov. I, I might be over. Um, I'm, I'm, I, I just got a, a friend of mine just offered me a gig doing some commentating and some some very – man, he said Africa. When he said Africa, I said – I almost told him I'd do, I do it for free. Oh, that's when a big ambition Africa. of mine. That's a big ambition Africa, of mine too. I was like, "How much we paying?" And he paid me less money than I wanted. But I'm like, as long as I get to go to Africa, you pay for everything else, I'm good. Well, I, I would happily team up with you again. The, the, the way we know each other, the way me and Nate know each other, is because we worked on uh, yeah. Aiba boxing together four years ago. We and, were in Tashkent, hey, man, Uzbekistan. I'll be with you, man, some of the one of the great best trips I ever had was the best trips I ever had was hell. The, the, we were together when Ali passed away, actually. The night Ali That's died, right. we got news. Ali died, we were together in Uzbekistan. First time I went to Uzbekistan, and um, Venezuela was nice. We had a great time. Yeah, Venezuela was great. It was great. It was so much fun. It was really was. It was really, it was, it was tremendous. And uh, as I said, Emmanuel Stewart described you as, as unusual. I would go along with that. I would go along with that. But what you can absolutely guarantee is that if you find yourself... I don't know if I like the way he's using unusual both ways. He also, towards the end of that fight, I'm sure you've watched it back plenty of times, described you as a great man and a great father. So he was kind of... 
was he was the one who from earlier in the fight was 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 getting on the Campbell train. I think he saw it a bit earlier than the others. You could see the tide turning, yeah. I'm gonna tell you something about me and Manny Stewart. Manny Stewart knew me better than most people knew knew of me because Manny Stewart trained the guy that took me to the world title. You didn't know that, did you? No, I didn't know that actually. I didn't know the Floyd Patterson thing either. It's just this has been uh, this is new information to me. Manny Stewart, Manny Stewart took John David Jackson to his first world title. Yep. I didn't know that. Manny, Manny Stewart, John David Jackson had. John David Jackson, Manny Stewart work, work, once worked my corner one time, and he said he he told me I was fighting the perfect fight, and the look on my face was like I was being I was being praised. It's like I was being praised by by God. <laughs> the and, respect. Um, oh my God, man! Every time I saw Manny Stewart, he made me feel special. There was never a time I met him he didn't make me feel like I belong, and that's great. That's a big thing. That's like, there's only, there's like, every fighter that I ever met that I love or trainer I ever met that I love made me feel like I belong. Um, Angelo Dundee made me feel, Angelo Dundee told me he loved me because I was old school. He said everything about, everything about me was old school and told me if I was, if he was 10 years younger, he would be training me right now. Man, the old trainers loved me. And um, there was only one man in this world that I ever, that I ever loved. I, I, that I ever wanted as a fighter, not ever loved, but I ever wanted to be. I wanted to, I didn't want to go to bed and wake up and be like this man. I wanted to go to bed and wake up and be this man. There's only one fighter that ever did that. Not Roy Jones, who I love. Aaron Pryor is the only guy I ever wanted. To, I wanted to go to sleep and wake up and be Aaron Pryor. That's how much I loved him as a fighter. And Aaron Pryor, Aaron Pryor told me that when I was an amateur, he said, you ain't going to never win a national tournament because you fight too much like me. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. It was the most – it was the greatest fight. I didn't I, – dude, my, I went home and told my mama, my foster mother, and my biological mother. I said, Aaron Price said I fight like him. And I was 26 years old when he told me. <laughs> but you could – I was this big kid. Like, man – I've been blessed to know all my heroes. I've met my heroes. I can truly say that I've been blessed to know my heroes. And now you've met Matt Macklin, if only by Zoom as well. So, you know. <laughs> well, well, I, 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 I knew met him before. I met him in Vero Beach. I, would, I, would, I met him in Vero Beach. And um, I, knew, I knew that when, uh, when um, like I said, anybody who trains with Buddy, if you train with Buddy, we know each other. We pretty much know each other because we're a pretty close-knit group. Um, the cool thing about ha- having a guy like Buddy in your corner is Buddy's always your dude. He's going to always be your dude. He's, if right now you see Buddy in the street, you, 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 you have a report. I have a, Buddy's still family to me. His daughters, his daughters and my daughters were about basically about the same age. So, you know, it's that way for us. And, um, whenever I see Buddy, even when I call him, I call Buddy McGregor, who you with? <laughs> So Matt Matt knows about that. Whenever you see Buddy, his fans say, "Who you with?" And and and, and so we just like you got to know Buddy. If you don't, like I said, if you don't like Buddy, more than likely you're the problem. He's a character. Yeah, great guy, man. He made training camp fun. Yeah, definitely. Okay, well we'll we'll uh, we'll wind it up there, Nate. As I said before, thanks 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 so much for sparing the time for this. It's been great. We'll do it again oh, at some point. Anytime, we'll do it again. Man, anytime. Let me know ahead of time, man. I'll, I'll always sit, always, always, always make time for you guys. Brilliant, brilliant. We'll hold you to that. Stay good. Uh, and everybody listening, thanks very much for, for tuning in as always. If uh, you find yourself on iTunes and fancy giving us uh, a rate and, uh, and a positive review, uh, then that's always welcome. And we'll be back again soon. And old Lucy Brown. Yes, that
Social Podcast Network. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW group. Void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.